When there's no response and you're not getting anywhere or you get promises that are continually broken and broken, that's when you're like, okay, there's got to be a point of no return that you reach. And, you know, I've seen it over and over again. Everybody keeps, you know, bending boundaries to give more time, more time. There's got to be a point where it's like, no more. Okay, I got to figure out what my other options are. Welcome back to the Or Project Shepherd Construction Podcast, where we teach that every successful project has four key components demonstrated by the simple drawing of a house. The foundation is proper planning. The left wall is your team. The right wall is communication. And the roof, protecting it all, is proper execution. Have all four of these components in place and your project will be successful. Today, I am so excited to be rejoined by Houston attorney and fellow podcast host, Carolyn Cromines, who was our guest on season one, where we talked about contracts. Uh, Carolyn's podcast is called Quit Getting Screwed. And if you're a contractor or subcontractor listening to the show, I highly recommend that you hop over there and check that out just as soon as you're finished listening to this one. Uh, So without further ado, uh, welcome back, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I'm glad to be here. Uh, last time you were on, we talked about the importance uh, of a good contract and some common mistakes that people make when they're signing a contract with a builder. Uh, but this season, we're talking about what does it cost. And so w- with you today, I wanted to dive into what kind of not only money, but also time um, and pain that people are, go- are going to have to go through if they decide to go the route of litigation in a construction situation. I also want to touch on arbitration and mediation because those are really kind of more of the common outcomes that people have in these disputes, right? Mm -hmm. But first of all, I just wanted to mention to people that this just this morning, I listened to a recent episode that you did with Adam Tuesley about construction defect claims. And that episode had a lot of parallels with what we're going to talk about today. So I hope that people will hop over there and listen to that episode as well, if this is a topic that interests them. I think some people have this mentality of, well, things go wrong, I'm just going to sue the builder. But it's not really that simple, right? No, generally speaking, it's not that simple. I mean, first off, you have to find the right attorney if you want to do that. You can't just haul off and fire the builder and hire somebody else. There's usually consequences around that. So you really got to plan that if this is if it's not working out, what you're going to do. And so first, you got to find a qualified attorney. And not every attorney that's an attorney is qualified for construction disputes, especially if it's construction defect disputes, because there's all kind of experts you need to hire and all of the things you have to line up appropriately to terminate your builder correctly, or you can get in trouble. So the first step would even be to find a qualified attorney to have the discussion with, hey, my project's going south. I've tried. I can't get it back in line. What are the next steps that we're going to take? What are the options that are available and what do you have to do to protect yourself? Because there's a lot of things like giving notice in a certain timeline to protect your rights, right? Texas especially, and there's other states too that have come um, come to the realization that homeowners don't always know what a construction defect looks like. So they've created this process where they have to give the, the residential, and this is only for residential construction, right? residential contractor notice of the defect and a chance to cure to make a reasonable offer. And the whole point of that is to hopefully the two parties get together before a lawsuit is filed and actually settle the matter. And it could be, you know, at by the point where at this point, both parties are tired of each other. So usually the owner will make a demand and it's got to be very specific. Usually we do, you know, inspection reports of what specifically is wrong and light item and make a demand that they either fix it or give us the cash to fix it. And then the contractor has a timeline in which to respond and not doing this whole process could prejudice the homeowner. And, and the fact that if they just go ahead and fix it without giving any notice, they might not be able to recover their damages for having to fix it. So this whole process is very important and it has to happen before you can sue a contractor. And even if it's not required by your state, it's probably a good idea because if you can, you know, get down to the real issues, you can solve them faster, spend less money on attorneys 
and, and most importantly, finish your house. Right. And so, I, you know, there's times that I've had people come to me and it was a small defect and a contractor that didn't have any money and they had a limited budget. And I was like, use your money to go finish your house. I don't know if I'll be able to find this guy. So, you know, let's, let's have a discussion about the real situation and, and what we need to do. Documenting those things as they happen is super important because once it's covered up, especially, you know, in construction where things are done in layers, once something's covered up and it's not documented, you know, it's, it's just even more of a pain to, to uncover that and prove that something was done wrong. Or if you just go ahead and fix it yourself and that wasn't documented, how do you protect yourself? Yeah, you can't. And, and, and here's the thing too, it's like things that are covered up could go a long time without being a problem. And then it's a problem, right? Right. Um, so before we dive too much further into this, I just wanted to kind of define a couple of terms for the non-attorneys listening, which is probably most people. Um, so what's the difference between mediation, arbitration, and then full-blown full litigation? That may be obvious, but let's just talk through those different scenarios. The main differentiation between like mediation and arbitration and litigation is mediation usually happens. You can be already in a lawsuit or whatever, but the, in mediation, there's no determination. Mediations, the parties come together and try to settle it. It's a helpful process, even if you don't settle, because you get to see all of the evidence. So how mediation happens is the parties agree on a mediator who is a neutral third party, has nothing to do with the case, usually is familiar with construction, residential construction, um, and will go spend either half a day or a full day. And you'll start generally in an open session where each party gets to say kind of what happened, where they think things are at, what they think they're entitled to. And then you'll, you'll break out into separate rooms. Uh, you know, you'll be in one room, the builder in the other room, and the, and the arbitrator is going to go back and forth. So usually the owner will make a demand um, and, the, and list the reasons why they're entitled to that. And the mediator is going to take that offer, go to the contractor's room and say, hey, this is what they're asking for. And here's all the reasons why. And the contractor is going to say, no, 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 they're not entitled to this because X, Y, Z. And then they'll throw an offer back and forth. If you don't settle, you don't settle. But the whole point of mediation is hopefully you guys can resolve it by yourself before it goes to arbitration or litigation. So arbitration is a private process. Litigation is public. So private, the arbitration is normally a lawyer familiar with construction that you by process of elimination pick to decide the case. And so in arbitration, you will have a final decision. If you, know, if you don't settle the case beforehand, you will go to a, a trial or administrative hearing and the arbitrator will listen to all the evidence and issue a decision just like a judge would. And so on the other side of that litigation, it's in front of a, a judge or a jury. It goes to trial and you get a decision. So basically, arbitration is a private court system that costs more, but you have uh, people who are more industry specific. So when you go to like public courts, a judge or a jury that know nothing about construction or how anything should go. When you're in arbitration, usually you have a construction attorney or somebody from the industry that's familiar in how it goes. So cost-wise, is, is arbitration sometimes more expensive than litigation? Up front, generally, yes, because the arbitration filing fees are more expensive. And then you're paying that person, the arbitrator, to make the decision, right? So you're right. paying an hourly fee. Now, in the long run, as opposed to spending all of the discovery motions and the long drawn out process that you have in a courtroom in the public court system, you don't have that arbitration. So it may cost more up front, but they are way more efficient. Your case gets heard faster and you save money in attorney's fees, not fighting over the things you would fight over in a public court system. Yeah. And I know this is maybe a tough question to answer, but you know, what, what does it, what are some costs in each of those scenarios? Uh, you know, what is a typical mediation cost? What is it, if there is such a thing? What is a typical arbitration cost? 
So you for like a mediation, the mediator's fee for a full day is usually somewhere around anywhere from $1,500 to $2,500 a party, depending on the mediator. And then you have your attorneys who bill by the hour for the entire day or half a day. So you're right. looking a minimum three to $5,000 just for the mediation, which is relatively small compared to if you went forward to a full-blown arbitration. I just did a full-blown arbitration with my part of the, I picked up the case late and went, it was $80,000 in fees. And I had another 40 that they had spent on attorneys before me. Wow. So to go to that extent that that's the dollar amount you're looking at. Yeah. Plus the cost of the arbitrator, right? Exactly. The arbitrator and your experts, you got to pay for your experts on top of that. Right. The attorney's fees at minimum would be the minimum arbitration would probably be more if you were in a public court system. Just because the time involved. And the, and there are other things that you like, there are lots of hearings and things that happen in a court system that don't happen in arbitration. So it becomes much more litigation attorney over pointless things kind of just sort of. Just more procedural stuff that you end up paying for that you exactly. don't have to pay for if it's arbitration. Exactly. And and the other thing too, right now, like most court systems are backed up from COVID. So you're looking at a year, two years to go to trial as opposed to an arbitration. You can usually, even the most complexes, you can get under a year. The smaller cases, six months, nine months, public court systems, a year, two years at least. For mediation, how, how fast can that happen? Depends on everybody's schedule. So trying to coordinate everybody, I would you can get it done in 30 to 60 days once you coordinate everybody's schedule um, and get everybody in the same time with the arbitrator, but you, that can happen relatively fast. What percentage-wise is mediation successful? It seems like that's something that you could go through and then at the end of it, people still throw their hands up in the air and say, we're moving forward with this. It happens all the time. And what I tell my client every time we go into mediation is that if it's successful, you're going to leave pissed off. You're not going to get everything you wanted, but you're going to get something and it's going to be over and it's going to be final, right? Right. So there's some some stuff you're willing to get up to have security of, you know, the outcome. Once we get past that point, it's going to be decided by the arbitrator or the judge or the jury. And there it's like rolling the dice. You don't know what you're going to get. So um, p- people who are willing to be reasonable. You know, most cases I take 90 percent of them settle. 10 percent don't. Yeah. And we end up going to trial. And and I promise you, it's never the outcome you thought you were going to get or the one that you thought you deserved. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond just the the cost of. The cost of it, the financial cost of it. I mean, there's also this, this huge time suck that's involved. And again, if it's if it's litigated, it could be several years long of of your life that you're never going to get back. Um, and just the emotional cost. It's like you know, if you if if you go to mediation or arbitration, at least it's over with fairly quickly, and you can just move on with your life. If you're going through the the court system. This is going to keep coming up in your life, keep coming up in your mind. Whether I'm representing, because I represent both homeowners and builders. And I really stress that point is um, best case scenario, you'll break even. And you probably won't even get that because you never get 100% of your attorney fees paid back. And so you're going to spend the next two years of your life going through depositions, producing all all the documents, probably more documents than even deal with this case, right? Not that it's all going to get used, but you got to turn it all over. Uh, It's just, it's stressful. The whole process is stressful. So to both the homeowner clients and the builder clients, there are so much better things you can be doing with your money resources and your time resources. Um, and I, you know, and I tell that to mom law clients because I don't want to get to the end of this. You hate me because I put you through this process because it's going to be painful. And you're, and you're not going to want to deal with me. You're not going to want to pay me. Um, so let's just be upfront. You know, depending on the, the, the amount of money involved, I mean, it, it, can, it can be worth it. I mean, if you're, if you're getting screwed for two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, you might say, you know what? It's worth it to go after that. No, and, and sometimes you get to get to the builder's insurance as well, yeah. uh, which will help the builder, you know, make it 
a reason, a more reasonable settlement offer earlier on because it's not coming directly out of their pocket. Don't be wrong. Their rates will go up or whatever, but, um, insurance will help. And like I said, but trying to as much as possible work together on the front end to at least to get to a mutual breaking point where we both kind of feel even. And I still think on both sides, it comes back to, you don't want to end up here, have a really good contract that both parties understand. Mm -hmm. It's so important, especially as a, from a homeowner, you know, situation, you have an idea of what's going to supposed to happen and it might not be in align with, with what's going to actually happen. But if the builder doesn't do a good job and tell you that, then you're continually judging his work against the standard that you've made up. And that's when we get into trouble. And the other part we get in trouble is when the builder fails to communicate about anything or fails to answer from it. That's the most frustrating thing. I think too, sometimes builders get callous to the fact that this is the most personal asset anybody ever owns is their home, right? right? And you're coming into their space or you're building their dream home, whatever. It's very personal. And so it's not just, oh, no, it's personal to them because it's their dream, right? And I think sometimes that gets forgotten and it's so emotional for a homeowner. And the builder does this every day. For the builder, it's just like another day at the office, right? For the, the homeowner's like, maybe, hopefully the one time in their life that they're going to go through this. Uh, and, and so, um, yeah, it's very personal to them it, and emotions run very high. And if you just acknowledge that, that means so much to them. Oh, you yeah. know, and it, it doesn't, you're like the builders, I'm here to get a job done. I don't want to have to deal with that, but it makes a huge difference. If you can just empathize with, Hey, you know, it sucks having me here in your house and it's dirty and, you know, and I, and I understand and I'm sorry. And here's what's happening. Right. So many times, most I'd say 95% of people are reasonable. There's 5% that are just crazy, but most people are reasonable. Yeah. I think one, one thing that people struggle with is when to end their relationship with a builder. Uh, people fall into this uh, thing that they call the sunk cost fallacy where they, they're like, man, I've sunk half a million dollars in two years of my life into this. If I just stick it out a little bit longer, it's going to work out in the end. Right. Um, I mean, it, it, it's like being in, in a, abusive relationship. It's like, I mean, it's going to get better if I just exactly. stay in it. He exactly. really does love me. Right. I mean, no, it, the, the law is there to give you relief from a bad situation. Exactly. So if the situation calls for it, you shouldn't be afraid to take advantage of what's, of what's allowed to you in the law. Right. Yep, absolutely. Those rights that you have. Absolutely. And the, and the point where like, when there's no response and you're not getting anywhere or you get promises that are continually broken and broken, that's when you're like, okay, there's got to be a point of no return that you reach. And, you know, I've seen it over and over again. Everybody keeps, you know, bending boundaries to give more time, more time. There's got to be a point where it's like, no more. Okay. I got to figure out what my other options are. At least if the builder's doing something, there's some kind of certainty there. You don't know what's uncertain. And so sometimes if you're getting to that point, having another builder come out and take a look and, or an inspector coming out, and take a look, maybe somebody that you're not, you know, their builder that you just want an opinion from make it very clear that you're not going to hire him. So it's not a prejudice system, but to, you know, and pay him for his time to come look at it because you want an independent investigation to prove that you're not, you know, most homeowners are like, am I crazy? Is this just me? Is this how it's supposed to go? Um, but another set of eyes, a professional eyes that'll tell you that, no, you're not crazy and that things don't work this way. Carolyn and I have a mutual client. We obviously won't get into the, the details on it, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a family that was under contract with a builder for several years. The house wasn't even halfway done. Uh, they hired me as the owner's rep to come in and, um, you know, take a look at the work, kind of analyze where they were in the process. And, you know, I, I said, this, this, this is bad. You know, you need to terminate this. 
And the guy said, well, I'll just stick it out longer. You know, he, he, he's promising me he's going to get it done. You know, um, I went in for a meeting with the guy. He basically yelled at me and told me I was just trying to cause problems. And I assured him that I was just trying to get it back on track. And so our client ended up staying with him for another six months. In those six months, nothing else happened on the, on the job. And things just got worse and worse and worse until it got to the point where, you know, we referred them to Carolyn and her team and they were able to get that, that relationship terminated. But four years into that project, they're still only halfway through. Whereas if they had just, if they had just been realistic a year or two years into the process and, and, and done it, then they would have saved themselves years and hundreds of thousands of dollars in heartache. Oh, absolutely. Not the interest on construction mortgages. I mean, just when it gets into a situation like that, the sooner you can end it, the better and get down another path. By the way, I, I, I talked to, I talked to him about this and he said that he would come on the podcast and give, <laughs> and, and give his side of the story on this so that, uh, so that he can kind of provide that cautionary tale for people not to get on the same path. So exactly. So that's good. If there's a, if there's a very builder friendly contract in place, which is actually pretty common, at least here in Texas, I think the, the TAB Texas Association of Builder Contract that most builders use is, pr- is pretty builder friendly. Yep. Um, if, if that type of contracts in place, are the homeowners outs? Are they, are they hard to pull off? Are they expensive to pull off? Or does it just make it harder and harder for the homeowner if they're in that type of contract? It does because you, a lot of them will waive a lot of rights. Like most of those contracts have mold exclusions, right? Yeah. So like anything that has mold on it, not only does it not cover the actual damage caused by mold, it doesn't cover like any of your stuff that may have been ruined by the mold or any, you know, any of your health issues or any, anything like that. So those contract provisions are enforceable. So it's important that you know what they are before you're signing. And there's also usually a limitation of liability that can limit builders liability and other things that can be, I mean, that will be upheld as part of the contract if you sign it. That's why it's hugely important to have it reviewed. What are the typical ways out in a, in a, in a contract? Again, kind of speaking specifically about Texas here, that's where we are, but what are the typical either ways out of a contract or typical relief for the homeowner in the process? I know there's the, the um, RECLA, RCLA process. Are there any other processes that are out there? So usually you have to look at the contract to see. Normally when two parties sign a contract, there's really not a way out. I know the builder contract usually has a right for the builder to end the contract. Right. right? So they have that right. Absolutely. The owner, unless they build that in, does not have that right. They can terminate their builder if they give him notice of the default and he doesn't cure it, right? So that's also part of the RECLA process. Here's your notice of default. If you don't cure, I'm going to terminate you, right? And you could terminate him and then still go through the RECLA process before you actually sued him. So that way you gave them the option and you, your settlement, your offer could be, I just want the cash to fix it, right? The process, usually you have to do it in accordance with the contract. And then you need to look at your state as to far as when do we have to give notice of these defects? How long do we have to get them to make us to actually cure or give us an offer? Uh, before we can sue them. So, but yeah, um, there's, there's almost, you can't just go off, haul off and say you're fired. That's don't do that. <laughs> then you'll be in the breach of the contract and then it would can all go south. So even with the worst builder. I know this is outside of the contract, but um, there's also the um, deceptive, deceptive trade practices act, which is another way that I'm, I'm fam- familiar with that people will um, kind of go after a builder for, for issues they've encountered. Can you talk to me about that? Sure. So the DTPA, Deceptive Trade Practices Act, there is a federal act and there's a state act, which basically says the actions you've taken are so bad and so fraudulent, you deserve triple damages as a penalty. One of the great things about RECLA is it says that, well, the great thing for builders on RECLA is that <laughs> the, under RECLA, DTPA cannot be 
use against a builder unless you can prove actual fraud, which is very hard right. to do um, because you have to prove intent. Like the builder intended to cause all this damage and do this. So generally speaking, it's not allowed. And the states that have this process of, you know, listing it out, giving us a chance to um, to fix it. But um, in general, consumer claims it is. But builders are protected in the states that have the process that they go through. So in Texas, if or because we have RECLA, you can't do DTPA, is Correct. that right? Correct. Unless you can prove actual fraud. And you can try, uh -huh. but the standard is much higher to prove it against a builder under RECLA, like actual fraud, which is not usually the standard for Usually the standard for DTPA is misrepresentation and a, rep, a misrepresentation that you relied on to your detriment, right. which would generally like if a builder promised you a house for this cost and you didn't do it and, you know, it turned out you, you know, you spent money and relied on that. That would generally apply. But under the because you're a residential builder and it's only residential, it takes it to a higher standard that a contractor can't be found guilty of a DTPA violation unless it was actual fraud. Like you stole money or, you know, some, something with intent okay. too. So it's a lot harder. Yeah. So it can't just be like, uh, Hey, the builder said I can build this house for $500,000 and he couldn't build the house for that much. He just kept pinging me with change orders saying, no, this ended up being more, this ended up being more. That wouldn't be something that would apply. No, no, not on, not under, not on a residential builder. Nope. Well, yes. That almost seems not fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, the builder has a great lobby, right? And the, the builders have a great lobby. And actually, RECLA used to be a lot larger. There was a, it was pre-2006. They had started, which most states have, especially residential contractors, have to be licensed. So Texas tried that idea for like a couple of years. Right. And they had, a, uh, which is how the GHBA was actually started is that it was a state promulgated and they would go in and do the inspections and kind of do a mediation between the parties. Well, they sunsetted, Texas sunsetted that part of it. And now it's just the laws of this is how you go through a dispute. So we're no longer involved in licensing contractors and trying to get involved in the disputes, but some of the rules that were there were left over from that. Yeah. And we touched on that last time you were here about how the lack of builder licensing is, is a problem. I mean, in, in, in my opinion, even though I'm, I'm a builder, I, I'm very much in favor of having builder licensing because it kind of weeds out a lot of the bad actors. I agree. Um, at least it makes you makes you have the right insurance. It makes you have makes some you level have a bond. Ed, ed, education, bond, training. I, I don't know. So, something to prove that you should be in this position, right? Across the board, some states are different, right? California has a test for every different section. Some are just have general builder license. And the main, the main thing is, I think, too, it helps with the process of the first place the homeowner can go is to that regular board and say, Hey, here's a problem. Yeah. And, and, and generally those guys are, you know, and the board will come out and inspect and say, you know, try to offer a resolution yeah. before it gets to lawyers, which is good for everybody. It's like with the real estate uh, here in Texas or in all States, really. I mean, there's a, a real estate licensing board. You have to pass tests. You have to uh, annual, or uh, I guess every two or three years ethics class, continuing education that you have to pass. I, even as a builder, I don't understand why we wouldn't want that. I agree. Here in Texas. I agree. So maybe I should encourage my my home packed lobby <laughs> to have builder licensing. And, and they're going to say we tried, but nobody wanted to keep it, you know, and maybe you should try again. It, I agree. I think it's great from the homeowner perspective and from the builder perspective, because uh, then you don't have to worry about unlicensed contractors taking the job for cheap and just taking the money and walking away or screwing it up and because they really don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So that's. Um... That's one of the big uh, reasons that people need to do a lot of research before, before they hire a, a builder here in Texas, especially 
um, not only looking at Google reviews no, and things no. like that, which can be manipulated. Talk to a homeowner that actually had built their house and they completed it. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, you know, ask to go walk that walk one of their active job sites so that you can look and see the condition of the site. How does, are, are things clean? Do things look like they're being done the right way? Well, and I think, I think too, the homeowner's got to come at it from the perspective, yes, you're hiring somebody, but you have to be very much involved in the process, right? Of building something if you want it to go off. Not overly controlling, but involved in the process and knowing what's going on and being out there every day. I, I think it's important for both sides. Yeah. One of the things that we always harp on is, you know, that trust but verify, you know, have multiple third party inspections at, at different phases, have the, the architect doing his CA, have the engineer doing his stuff, owner's representative, independent inspectors, whatever. But for literally a couple of thousand more dollars on your whole project, if you're spending a million dollars plus to build a house, why not spend two thousand more dollars to do some inspections? To well, yeah, and don't think yourself. just because the bank approved the draw that they know anything about it, or that no. they're going to be on the hook if the contractor doesn't do the work. I see that all the time. But the bank approved the money; they have no liability for you or for the builder. No, the bank's draw inspector. I mean, sometimes that guy has has some construction experience, but a lot of times that person is just going out to. Yep, it looks like the paint's on the wall. Yeah, exactly. it looks like the drywall's been hung. It's that's that, that's what they're doing. No, and and they're not going to be there to help you when you get into dispute with your builder about yes, we you know we agreed that this was done. You you would release them of any and all liability when you take money from them. Yeah, I mean one of the services that I offer is is doing independent draw inspections where I'm digging in beyond just the surface level, and uh, you know we've identified numerous problems in that process where you know. I didn't authorize payment release to the builder because something it's, it's done, but it's not done right. right yeah. And it's, it's obvious to me because I do it every day. Whereas that bank inspector would never, the bank inspector didn't catch that. Exactly. And, but I came behind them and I, I found those, those problems. And, and it's so, it's so good to do that because then you stop so many things from going South. And because like you said, it's layers. Once you build on top of it, once, and then you go back and realize it's wrong, how much is going to cost to fix it. And if it's going to cost too much, they're not going to do it the right way. And there's also a difference between something being done to minimum code versus being done in a good, in a good workmanship, workmanlike manner, yeah, right? Exactly. The two are not always the same. And that's the other thing too. Don't rely on passing inspection to say the builder did a good job either. Cause uh, we both know that that doesn't hold up water either. No, I mean the city inspectors, they can't catch everything. They, they have so many inspections that they have to do on a daily basis that they're kind of get in, get out. They have like their pet things that they're looking for in the house. You know, Every every year, the city's like, "Hey, we're watching for this item, this new code. We're keeping an eye on." And everything else is like, "If you happen to catch it, great." But yeah, and the city will never be a city or a county will never be liable for you for passing inspection. It really shouldn't have. No. So yeah. So so having you know someone like me, not to toot my own horn, but somebody like me, a engineer, the architect, have just multiple people checking throughout the process at the very beginning. Having the attorney check the contract. I mean. How much does it cost if somebody sends you a construction contract and said, Carolyn, can you review this contract for me? What does that cost? So my uh, zero to 15 pages is $720 and then 15 to 30 pages is uh, $1,200. And I have a five business day turnaround. And I'll I'll tell you all the things and you can tell me what you want to negotiate and what you don't. So for 700 to 1500 bucks, somewhere in that range, you can head off a lot of these problems before they ever... Become, become a problem. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At the very least, you understand what you're signing, right? Because especially being in a homeowner going to this, in that 
you're like in a honeymoon phase when you find your builder, you have your perfect house and you're like, oh, that's fine. I'll just trust and sign it. And then you don't really realize what you're signing away. I think it's even worse with um, electronic signature that people are doing now because I mean, I I'm guilty of this too. When somebody sends me a docu sign, I'm like, quick, 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 done. Yeah, I did. Right? nobody reads it. I know. And and it's forever signed. Yeah, <laughs> and so you've got a 35-page construction contract, you know, with all the addendums, and you just click through and sign it. You never read anything. At least when it was paper, you had to physically turn Some from page. page to page to sign the bottom of each page. And there were some words in bold or yeah. some under some underlined words that you might pay more attention to because usually those are the important things, yes, right? If they're bold. signature here, signature. Yeah, so if if there's an extra initial spot or if there's something in bold, you should probably look at that. Exactly. Uh, but it's on paper. You could do that. But with the electronic signature, people just breeze through it. And no, I know. That's why I tell my builders like, hey, if something's really important, take the time and walk them through the contract. Tell them what it means. Yeah. Because uh, if we get to the point in the project where we're looking at the contract to decide what should happen, uh, we're way we're way away from where we should be. Yeah. I'm, I mean, even on even on million, two million, three million dollar construction contracts you'd be shocked at how many people just click through and sign. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I've seen them. <laughs> or how many smaller projects may not even have a contract, right? Oh, absolutely. People are like, oh, just, just do it. You know, I, I mean. That's bad for both parties. <laughs> I mean, you you wanna, yeah. You want to know the litigation that never ends? Try, try settling a dispute or arguing a dispute that doesn't have a contract. Because it's just whatever whoever says, because I got nothing. I'd be interested to hear your take on this. I think one of the most important parts of the contract is, is, is what are the performance standards? Like what's the mirror that we're holding things up to that, to judge what's, what's right and what's wrong. So when you're talking about construction defects, so who for example, defective. Yeah. So who says that's defective? So in the Texas contract, there's the, the limited warranty and performance standards document that goes with that. And that clearly outlines, Hey, if a crack is less than this much, it's not a defect. If you can stand six feet away from a wall, in normal light, and you can't see a defect in the paint, it doesn't exist. You know, there's no putting your nose up on the wall and trying to find defects, right? Absolutely. So, but in, in, in lieu of that, there's, there's, there's no way to judge. It's just like, I don't like that. Well, yeah. And then you have, then you get down to expert testimony, right? Who says your expert says this, my expert says this, the, the code says this, the general building standards say this, then it's all up to some other. And what, what you come down to is that somebody who had was not part of your agreement, was not there, is going to decide what your agreement was. And you might not like their interpretation. Right. I think in Texas a lot, at least what I've heard, is that that, um, that TAB, Limited Warranty Performance Standards document, is kind of the, the, the standard that exists. So in, if, if your contract lacks something, that's kind of the default standard that things are judged by. Is that, that correct? That's, that's an argument. It's, it's an argument. <laughs> Lawyers are really good at their jobs, right? I mean, and that's the other thing too, is like, it might seem so clear to you, but I promise you that's not what the other side's thinking right? or what they're going to try to prove. Just to kind of wrap it up. I mean, it's, it's always kind of a tightrope to walk to, to decide whether or not you should stay in that relationship and stick it out or whether you should terminate it and go another direction. And so I think that um, having an attorney to help you make those decisions is is super important. So if someone comes to you with that dilemma, you know, how do you typically advise them? I mean, what's what what's your approach? So I really kind of listen to what they're saying. Like, okay, where are we at? Okay, the builder went on vacation, he didn't respond to week, but then he then he came back. Are we being extra sensitive and really kind of gauging? Okay, is this a real problem that that 
from my experience and from your experience, you can usually tell by the story that they're telling if it's just somebody being lazy or somebody that messed it up and we got a problem. And so usually if somebody's, if it's, if it's on the fence, what I'll ask them to do is go hire an inspector. Just tell them, you know, the builder could be out there, not be out there, whatever. Hire an inspector, get a report back, see what you, and if they're minor, don't be wrong. Every inspector you ever send out there is going to find something. Right. Right. And it could be, and if they're minor things, you say, Hey, I want to get these things fixed. And your builder does it or says, Hey, no, this is why I did it this way. And your open line of communication, they're willing to work with you. I think you're all right. But yeah. if, if they ghost you, then yeah. Yeah. Then we need to dismiss you. But if that, if that list, the inspector comes back with is 10 pages long and it's major stuff. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that's usually the telltale sign is like, okay, is this something that's minor? They're actually doing a pretty good job. They just have some, you know, they need to finish the tiling and, you know, they need to finish the paint scratches, like a punch list kind of thing. Or do we have huge issues? Right. Using the people that you already have in your corner. Um, if you had an architect design the house, an engineer design the house. Yep. Ask them to come out. They may not charge you anything or they may just charge you a $150 an hour rate to come out and walk the house or whatever, which is going to be cheaper than probably an inspector or an attorney. They're, they're already familiar with the project. They're already in your corner. So have them out and they'll, they'll tell you, no, you're being, you're being silly. Don't, don't worry about this. This is not a big issue. Or holy crap. Stop. Stop. <laughs> to fix this. Call the attorney. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that, that'll help because usually most homeowners have a gut reaction. They know they might not know a hundred percent, but if trust your, what I tell bo- both builders and owners is trust your gut. Right. I would tell you 90% of the people that come into my office, man, I, knew I shouldn't have hired that builder. And the builder's like, I knew I should have done that job. So, I mean, that, that's my biggest thing is that, you know, yeah, you know, it goes both ways too. I mean, as a builder, like you said, sometimes you, you know that I, I shouldn't be dealing with that crazy person. <laughs> this is, we don't match and they can go find somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause it's, it's never going to get better than it is right then. Right. And, and I'll also just kind of close with this. Not every builder is right for every client. Not every client is right for every builder. It doesn't necessarily mean that that builder or that client is bad. They're, they just may not be a good fit for each other. Absolutely. It's um, like- so I, I think in the, in the instance that I mentioned a minute ago, um, the, the client is very, very picky. He likes to, to analyze things and change things. The builder didn't know how to manage that. Right. And so you have to have a builder that understands how to handle a certain type of client. And I would say in general, a lot of your more experienced, more higher end builders who've been around the block are going to have more experience in handling those types of clients. They may be more used to handling the engineers of the world and yeah. the attorneys of the world. Things like that. Actually, attorneys are, to me, very easy clients. But now, Being an attorney, I can't find a builder that wants to work for me. I'll take care of you. No, but seriously, I, I, we, uh, I was at a GHBA seminar a while back, and they were talking about the, like the top four problem clients in their professions. And it's like <laughs> engineers, um, attorneys, doctors, doctors. Uh, doctors had to be on the list. Oh yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I, we've done work for multiple attorneys. I've never had an issue. In fact, most of them have been kind of the most laid back, easygoing ones that I've worked with probably because they knew that they could sue the crap out of me. If, if, if I, exactly. That's one thing, we, that's one thing we got going for us. It's not going to cost us attorney's fees. So, <laughs> <laughs> but knock on wood, I've not had any issues with them so far. So, well, hey, thanks so much for being with me today. I really appreciate you. Always a pleasure to see you, and hopefully we can keep working together some more. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I always look forward to helping. All right.
Well, thank you all for joining us on this episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. Um, we are definitely going to list uh, Carolyn's contact information, uh, her website, podcast, uh, social media, all that stuff on our show notes here. And she's very active on uh, LinkedIn and um, all those all those places, all the things. So please go check out her, her stuff too. She puts out some fantastic content. And we hope to see you on the next episode of the Your Project Shepherd podcast. Mm-hmm.